The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Gilbert, very much, very true words. Uh, this time, I'd like to introduce to many of you, uh, again, a very familiar face, uh, John Higgins. Uh, John serves as our deacon vice chair and uh, uh, also serves as our benevolence team coordinator and a Sunday school teacher, among other things, at the church. Uh, John, you and I talked about you preaching, brother, just before you had your uh, uh, cancer surgery a while back, about, I think it was early May, around this time, and uh, it's a blessing to hear you as we end out our series of biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, John came to faith in 2000, is that right, 2000, 2001, uh, and uh, so he's been growing like an oak ever since. Uh, many of you know John and, and just uh, appreciate his passion for the word, and uh, so you will be blessed this morning as he answers that question, what is my identity in Jesus Christ? What does that look like? How does that relate to being a biblical man, a biblical woman? John, without further ado, brother, why don't you come and uh, preach and uh, challenge us through the word. Thanks a lot, Gilbert. Very moving song, make me teary-eyed right before I come up, like I wasn't nervous enough. This morning, this really happened, this morning Darren texted me and said that the power was out in the church, and I thought, right on. <laughs> I said, now everybody's going to be out of their comfort zone. And then unfortunately, a little bit later, Matt, the bearer of bad news, Texted me and said the power's back on. I thought, oh. Actually, I did at that moment. I exhibited something that we studied in Sunday school, which was having a thankful heart. I thought to the Lord, I said, thanks a lot, Lord. <laughs> first things first. To my wife. I promise. I will make no reference to you or anything about you in this message. Uh, I've been known to do that and been known to embarrass her. Uh, I can tend to talk a lot. I can tend to talk too much. Plus, I'm just pretty open. But I promise today you're safe, so just relax. Nothing about you. What a privilege and honor it is to be given the opportunity this morning to speak God's words into the hearts of my brothers and sisters at Tower View, as well as anyone that's not quite sure, maybe on the fence, and to anybody where there's just no place left to turn. Thank you, Darren, for affording me this time. Uh, it's hard to follow up Darren. I, I really believe he has become quite the good preacher. Uh, he knows how to mix humor and a good word uh, very well, uh, especially the humor part. I will not. I'm not a funny man. My wife will attest to that, uh, especially spontaneously. Uh, but nevertheless, may the word of God speak and continue to transform each and every one of us. Uh, the last four or five weeks, Pastor Darren's been sharing with us the biblical truths 
about manhood and womanhood within the kingdom of God. He's talked about man's identity under Christ and his identity to love himself, love his wife as he loves himself. He's talked about a woman's identity in biblically submitting to her husband as she submits to the Lord. He's led us to a very clear and practical understanding of our gender, of our gender's identities within the context of a relationship with our Lord and with our spouse. It's really been insightful because uh, we were created for relationships. First, a relationship with the Lord, with God. Second, a relationship with our spouse and our family. Third, a relationship with others. And fourth, a relationship with ourself. And fifth, a relationship with his creation. That's why we were created, for relationship within the context of all those five things at different times. But these kingdom principles about biblical manhood and womanhood have to be fleshed out in a God-fearing and a God-honoring way. There is a question that we must ask and answer. It's a question that will challenge us as well as set us free. John 8, 31, 32, we're all familiar with it. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When we answer this question, we will be in the habit of abiding in his word, being obedient to his word. And we'll be the we'll and we will know the truth, and we will be made free from the bondage of sin, particularly in our relationships. So the question that we must ask and answer is, who am I in Christ? What is my identity in Jesus? Everyone here, we all want for identity. We want to know just who we are, What's our purpose, and where's our place in this world? We want for identity. And hopefully we want to know these things from a biblical perspective. A famous preacher once visited a nursing home that had some patients with Alzheimer's in it. He went around and greeted the people who were very glad to see him. He walked up to one lady and asked, Do you know who I am? She said, No, but you can go to the front desk and they'll tell you. So at different times in our lives, we all lose sight of who we are. We lose our focus on what's important. If your focus is slightly blurry this morning, I pray that this message will clear the eyes of your heart just a little bit. I love quotes. Uh, other people can say things so much better than I. Uh, Lily Tomlin, I'm sure many of you have heard of her, comedian and actress, uh, she once said, I've always wanted to be somebody, but see now that I should have been more specific. <laughs> well, let's today get more specific. Because we should want to be somebody. We should want to be like Christ. We should know what our true identity in Jesus is. We should first of all know who I am in Christ.
Have you ever asked yourself that question? Who am I in Christ? It's an important question. It's a question I'll bet many of us have never asked or answered, which is kind of surprising since we just love to think in terms of I. Let me encourage you to write that question down. Spend some time this week answering that question to yourself. If you've been saved, then you have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. He has his part, and you have your part. Sure, we know our part's not to sin and to obey Scripture. Or is that our part? I say, no, it's not. Not sinning and obeying Scripture are the consequences of a relationship with Jesus. So our part is being in relationship with him, being connected with him. And being connected with him, we need to know who we are in him. Each of us are children of God. We've all been saved by the loving, redeeming hand of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know who Christ is in us. We must know who he is in us to receive salvation. We must know that he is the only Savior. We must know that we are hopelessly sinful people that couldn't save ourselves and that Jesus was God's sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty for our sins. We must know that he rose to life on the third day. He gained victory over sin and death so that everyone who has faith and believes this will have their righteous relationship with God restored for eternity. We must know these things to be saved. We know who Christ is in us, or we know who we are. Confused myself. We know who Christ is in us. But who are we in Christ? It's a different question. What is our identity in Christ? So this morning I'm going to talk about three things that we're to identify which, uh, with that will help live us out who we are in the Lord. Three things that give us an intimate connection, an intimate relationship with Jesus. Three things that give us our identity. First, having a surrendered soul. Second, being a suffering servant. And third, I'll talk about finding the joy in being a saved saint. See what I did there? Surrendered soul, suffering servant, saved saint. Someday I just might make a good Baptist. <laughs> Our text this morning comes from the book of Daniel, beginning in chapter 1. The book of Daniel spans the entire 70 years of the Babylonian rule over Israel. From 605 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar seized, laid siege to Jerusalem to 535 B.C. when the Medo-Persians conquered Babylonia. When King Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, he exiled many Jews to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq including Daniel and his three teenage friends. He specifically chose Daniel and these friends because they had a noble background. He chose them with the idea of changing their identities and brainwashing them into the Babylonian culture of excess for the purpose of serving the king and his palace and serving his God. One of the first acts against these boys was to change their name change their identity. 
insider's tip, it didn't work. Let us now stand in reverence to read God's word. Read Daniel 1, 3 through 8 in the Pew Bible, that's page 737. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his enochs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and the wines which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Let us pray. Lord, I pray this morning that your word moves on our hearts and speaks to us loud and clear to who we are in Christ. May you, Holy Spirit, have your way with us today as we bow our hearts before you and raise our spirits to you. In the precious name of Jesus, I pray, your Son and our Savior. Amen. So this morning, I'll present the three heart sets that will lead us to know our true identity in Christ. At the end, I'll wrap them all together to show how our, how our identity in Jesus determines two very important aspects of our everyday life. A famous general, Douglas MacArthur, was meeting his foe, a Japanese general. The meeting was set up for the Japanese general to officially surrender in World War II. The Japanese general stuck out his hand to shake MacArthur's hand, and MacArthur said, I cannot shake your hand, sir, until you first surrender your sword. Meaning that we cannot, he was meaning we can't be friends as long as that sword is hanging at your side. Give me the sword, and then we'll shake hands. A lot of us want to shake God's hand into sur in surrender while we carry our own sword, while we have our own will. We must surrender our wills to God before we can be in complete fellowship with him. So the first heart set that we want to cultivate is that of a surrendered soul. Daniel was chosen, then kidnapped from Jerusalem to serve the king in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Chosen because he came from a noble family also chosen because, as verse 4 says, he was good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, and quick to understand. The king would take all these wonderful traits of Daniel 
and train him for three years. Otherwise, he would brainwash him for three years, removing his identity as a Hebrew and a follower of Yahweh and recreating him into the pagan culture of Babylon and all its excesses. He would attempt to assimilate Daniel and his three friends into a culture of excess and ungodliness to meet his ends, to meet the king's ends, to further the king's worldly power and influence. Does this sound familiar yet? Are we ever being pulled towards a culture of excess, a culture of ungodliness here in America? Sometimes I've heard a couple people start lately referring to America as Babylon. In verse 5, the king appoints these young boys to a daily provision of the king's delicacies and the wine he drank. Delicacies can also be translated as meat, which means a rich food. In Daniel's day, he had the scriptures of the five books of Moses and Proverbs. Those were his scriptures to read and learn and live by. Proverbs 23, 1 through 3 says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. There's no doubt that Daniel had been raised in the scriptures. There's no doubt he was familiar with these verses. He had his, Daniel had his warning. But here he was, a young boy in an unfamiliar place, in a very elaborate king's palace, probably nervous, probably more nervous than a deer on a firing range, smelling the incredible aroma of fired racks of lamb, with many other smells of rich foods just wafting through the air. And what would he do? What would you do? Time has not changed, teenage boys. For those of you who have raised teenage boys, you know they like to eat. You know they need to eat. And they eat a lot. They always have and they always will. But Daniel knew his identity in the Lord. Verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart. This means his heart set was that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. His heart set before he ever entered the king's palace, before he ever even left Jerusalem, was that he would not defile himself with this delectable food. He wouldn't pollute or stain or desecrate, which means disrespect himself. His heart set was a surrendered soul, surrendered to his Lord. If he disrespected himself, he disrespected his Lord. His identity was in the Lord. If he polluted or stained himself, he polluted or stained the name of his Lord. He was not willing to shake God's hand while he carried his own sword, his own will. Daniel was living out the results of choosing to have a surrendered soul. His will surrendered to his Lord's will, surrendered to the will of the living God. He was in complete fellowship with him. Daniel was so connected that he couldn't defile himself. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with the maker. An earthen vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? 
Daniel, just a teenager, was not about to quarrel with God. And he was not about to act outside his creator's will. Not for his own safety. Not to appease the king. And definitely not to just make life easier. In a foreign land, alongside a king's court that could let him live or kill him, he chose the hard way, the unknown way, the Lord's way. Many times we are, cho we are called to choose the hard way, the way of the unknown. The first verse in the song called, It Is Well With My Soul, says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Beautiful words, but more importantly, what a beautiful truth. Sitting in the king's palace, Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He was saying no to the most powerful man in his new world. And he was at peace. Whatever his lot, he was at peace. Why? Because it was well with his soul, his surrendered soul. By the grace and power of God, it was well. Have you put down your sword of your will? Is it really well with your soul? Do you have that peace like a river that can only come if you purpose in your heart to surrender your all? Purpose it every day, purpose it every week, and it will be well with your soul. Oysters suffer affliction. Some of you have heard this and know this, but oysters suffer affliction when they get a grain of sand lodged in their shell. No matter what they do, they can't get rid of it. The sand gets lodged there, and it's irritating to the oyster. It's a thorn. It drives them crazy. To bring comfort to the anguish, to their anguish, they begin to coat the grain of sand over and over and over again. Coating the sand doesn't get rid of it. It just gives them some comfort. Over time, the coating of the grain of sand over and over again produces something that costs a lot of money. It's called a pearl. A pearl is the result of an irritated oyster. The pain results in beauty. Their pain results in elegance. The pain results in something of high value. When God allows us to suffer, suffer, He's producing something precious. Remember this, because we all go through suffering. So the second heart set we want to cultivate is that of a suffering servant. I'm going to read scripture now from Daniel 3, no standing this time, 3, 12 through 20. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying this to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now, if you are ready at this time, 
you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So these three young men had been set over the affairs of Babylon. Babylon, Babylon was known for being a very great city, uh, beautiful city. King Nebuchadnezzar had beat, built the hanging, gar, hanging gardens of Babylon, which I'm sure many have heard of. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Babylon was a center for the arts and intellectual pursuits. Schools and temples were plentiful, temples of false gods, of course. And literacy, mathematics, and craftsmanship excelled. It was a hub of activity, a happening place. Scripture doesn't specifically say what affairs Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were over, but they obviously were right in the middle of their new culture. The Babylonian gov governmental structure was massive, and the king had it meddling in every aspect and detail of their lives. They had their eyes on everything, and they also had their eyes on these three young boys. At the end of verse 12, the king's henchmen say to the king, they, referring to these three boys, do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. You might say they were in the culture, but not of the culture. Being enemies of these servants of God, soon to be suffering servants, these enemies witnessed such a clear-cut testimony that they were in no doubt about these boys' rejection of idolatry and their unshakable allegiance to their God, the God of Israel. And King Nebuchadnezzar didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. And in his rage and fury, his violent anger, he called these three boys in front of him and said, Is it true you won't serve my gods or bow down to my golden statue of myself? Think about it for a minute. Just like Daniel, they were in a foreign world, a world where they were completely vulnerable a world that made them uneasy and probably even scared. And here was the king standing before them in a fit of rage, asking, is it true you won't bow down to me? It's at this point, I think it's safe to say, they began to suffer. Suffering can come in, in many forms, and fear is certainly one of them. They'd been serving the Lord God by refusing to give in to the Babylonian culture, by remaining faithful, and now they began to suffer. Just as the oyster and the grain of sand, their affliction and suffering began. The king had entered into their shell of faith, and it was irritating. It hurt. It felt like it was about to kill them. They had to suffer to make something beautiful. But then in verse 15, the, kings get, the king gives them one last chance to change their mind to fall in line, to end their fear, to end their suffering. But it gets worse. 
king's anger turns into a real-life practical threat. But if you don't change your mind, he says, I will cast you into the fiery furnace. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think their fear factor was? What would our fear factor be? Probably 99. As I was preparing this message, a parallel came to my heart. I'm definitely not smart enough, smart enough to know if God intended these to be two parallel passages, but I saw them as such. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood at the anguish that was before him, the kiss of death, the brutal thought of the crucifixion on a wooden cross. Jesus was suffering, and as Philippians 2.7 says, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus was a suffering servant of God the Father. And here were these three boys. I have to believe they were in anguish. In anguish at the thought of a brutal death, a brutal death in a fiery furnace. <coughs> suffering servants of their Lord God. So with the looming threat of being burned to death by fire right in their face, how did they respond? Incredibly, they responded with, if this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Again, I see a parallel in the Garden of Gethsemane. But if not, they said, as Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. So when we have the heart set of a suffering servant, it gives opportunity to our God to manifest himself in ways nothing else can. The opportunity to bring us through suffering unharmed and unscorched. It also gives him opportunity to bring us through suffering that feels like we are sweating blood, only to deliver us on the other side to new life eternal life. Our God is an awesome God. The third heart set that we want to cultivate is that of a saved saint. At the end of the last verse, we read that the three boys had said, more or less, not what my will, but yours, Lord. They said, our God may deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he may not. Either way, we're not bowing down to your God's we're not bowing down to your culture or to you. Now, for the last set of verses, I want to pick up in Daniel 3, 19 through 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast in the, into the midst of the burning furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down 
bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. This is where the uh, uh, picture of them suffering servants, they were just thrown into the fire, thrown down into the midst of a burning furnace, suffering servants. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast these men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And in the form of a fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. Their hair on their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell was not on the smell of fire was not on them. Here we see the saved saints, literally physically saved. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. They had yielded their bodies. They had a surrendered soul. So in this final text, we, we see all three of these principles coming about. These principles were shining through with such power that it made King Nebuchadnezzar do a 180. He went from saying, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands to saying, blessed be the God of these three boys who sent his angel and delivered his servants. Granted, that 180 only lasted for a little while, but it did last for a minute. For some reason, this is the last time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are ever mentioned in Scripture. So we're not exactly sure how they responded to this remarkable event. But I think we can make some very educated assumptions. At least I'm going to. Because of their surrendered soul and their choosing to be a suffering servant, there were some consequences. All of our decisions have consequences. The consequences here were that they were saved from death. Saved by the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of you and I. Based on their lives up to this point, I can't imagine anything less than them completing their lives, focusing on the joy of their salvation. In more ways than one. Saved for eternity, as well as saved from the fire. When we have a godly heart set, it comes down to being continually overjoyed with our salvation and the results that that brings. What results does that bring? Psalm 51, 12, and 13 says it best. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. The generous Holy Spirit upholds us in times of conflict, in times of tragedy, in times of loss. He upholds us so our joy doesn't waver, so our joy doesn't disappear. But this can happen only 
if we are intentional about having the heart set at all times to focus on the most incredible, amazing gift of grace that we could ever receive, which is our salvation. One of the more common phrases we hear in life, especially from our kids, is life isn't fair, that isn't fair. And I will concede on one level that can be true. But that's not a level we want to live on. That is a level that is not about truth. It's about worldly stuff. The level we want to live on is life is completely fair. Because in life, we've been given a choice. It's the only choice that matters. I'm constantly raising my grandkids. And praise the Lord, they're all here this morning. Even my two-year-old. Oh, thank you, Jesus. They will attest that I'm always raising my grandkids, telling them life is fair. It's completely fair. Because in life, we've been given a choice, the only choice that matters. The choice to choose Jesus or the choice to choose this world. The choice to choose eternal life in heaven or to choose eternal life in hell. The choice to choose to be in the presence of God forever or to be without his presence forever. How can anything be more fair than, we, than when we can choose. Thank you, Jesus. Now back to Psalm 5113, the second verse of the two. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. This is in the context of having a joyful soul over our salvation, being joyful in our salvation, of being a saved saint. The results that this amazing joy of salvation brings is, is being a witness to the lost and leading them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, helping them see that they have a choice, that life is fair, that the opportunity is before them to be a saved saint. It doesn't get any more exciting than that. In Psalm 21, 1 through 2, King David writes, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, referring to himself. And in your salvation, how greatly he rejoiced. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Our joy is to be in his strength. In our strength, our joy comes and goes. When good things happen, we feel joy. When bad things happen, we don't. We can be so sadly simple. In our strength, we're dictated by emotions. Emotions are unpredictable. Emotions can tend to go to the extremes. But in our Lord's strength, joy remains. It's consistent. It's dictated by the Holy Spirit whose sole job is to reveal Jesus Christ to us who is the author of our salvation. In verse 2, where he writes, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. David is recognizing that the very basic desire of his heart is reunion with God. Reconciliation. 
to go from sinner to saint. When we surrender our broken heart's desire for a Savior, which for so many of us, it takes that. It takes us to be broken before we will give our heart and our life to the Lord. When we do that, he will not withhold the request of our lips. As Romans 10, 9 says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a promise. So cultivate the heart set of a saved saint, a joyful, saved saint, and there will be no joy greater that you could ever wear. So to wrap this up, three heart sets that we can cultivate that will help us biblically recognize and live out who I am in Christ are that we have to have a surrendered soul. We want to embrace being a suffering servant when God allows that, when God allows us to be in that place. And we want to focus on the fact that we are a saved saint and the joy that is in that, the daily joy and the immense joy I'll harken back to Judas probably seven or eight years ago, and I don't, I don't like mentioning people's name in the congregation usually, but I'm going to today, Verlene. I saw her earlier. I haven't seen her through my glasses. But a few years ago, I was having a hard time with something going on in my family. And I was frustrated. Things weren't getting better for them. And I remember being down in the basement of the fellowship center. There you are, Verlene. Verlene said to me, John, just remember the joy of your salvation. I will confess that's one line that's been spoken to me that changed my life. One of a few. It changed my outlook. It changed my heart. Thank you for that. There's so much joy in our salvation. So what does it mean to live out who we are in Christ? What does it look like and when does it show up? Is it for our benefit? Is it for our well-being? Or is it only apparent inside of ourselves? Is it a self-assurance thing? No, 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 and no. It's none of those. Remember at the beginning I talked about the five relationships that we are to have with God, spouse and family, others, ourselves, and God's creation. The whole purpose of cultivating these three heart sets are for the benefit of our relationships. Darren has been speaking on them for five, six weeks. And in these relationships, notice that God, when he has put them in priority, has put ourselves at number four. And those are listed in the priorities of which we should pursue these relationships. So much for ourselves being number one. So when should these things show up? Every time we interact with someone, which is always. We are never not interacting with someone. If it's not the Lord, it's someone here, we're always interacting. If it's not someone here, it's ourselves. We are always in relationship 24-7. We just don't think about it. It's too deep. So when should th these things show up? All the time. What does it look like? word tells it here, it looks like Jesus Christ. So our identity in Christ is our character, for better or for worse. How surrendered we are to the will of our God, 
how well we embrace being a suffering servant and how often we maintain our joy and our salvation directly dictates our character at the most fundamental levels. These are the things that make us stand apart from the world that we live in. These are the things that glorify God, that allow him to manifest himself to a lost world through us. These are the things that determine our true identity, our true character. And our identity and relationships is our responsibility. Our true character matters because it shows up in all of our relationships. And since that's why we were created for relationship, it's our responsibility to foster each one in a God-honoring way. If we biblically fulfill our identity in these three areas that I've spoke on, I guarantee our relationships will be healthy. More importantly, God promises it. Is it easy? No. Can it be done constantly? Yes. But only through the grace and the power of our Lord God. And it all begins with surrender. Humbling ourselves in complete surrender. Amen.